Where do we go to weather life's storms? Do we turn to false gods and attempt to find refuge and peace through their passing pleasures? Or do we do what we're taught in the Bible, that is, to go to the Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit? Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're in a study now of the life of Elisha. In today's passage, we see what the trials of life reveal about our relationship with God. Well, Phil, today you're going to talk about how people should respond in the midst of life's storms. How does today's passage deal with that issue? Well, Mark, today we'll be introduced to three different kings who have three very different responses to the stormy times that they're going through. There's Joram, the ungodly king of Israel, who in his day of trouble cries out against God and accuses God of causing the trouble. We'll meet Misha, the king of Moab, who looked to himself to provide the answer to his own problems. And then there's King Jehoshaphat. He's the one who desires to seek out the will of God in the time of trouble. Shouldn't we always be going to God for counsel and refuge, regardless of our situation, not just when we have times of hardship or distress? Well, that's true, isn't it, Mark? I mean, a lot of times people do turn to God, even if they're not believers, when they're really in trouble. I suppose what we do in the time of trouble really reveals the true condition of our hearts. But we should really be going to God with everything, even just the little things of daily life, whatever small struggles or even small joys that we're having, all of these things should be brought to God in prayer and praise. That's the kind of life that is really pleasing to God, a life in which we're always going to him with everything that we need. All right. Well, thank you, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Second Kings chapter 3 and listen to God's word for us today. Once a high school youth group was camping in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey, and as they were camping, suddenly they heard cries coming from a clearing a little ways away in the forest. And there were children shouting, and there were parents yelling, and people running in every direction at once. And so the youth group sprang into action, and they ran over to the clearing, and they sized up the situation, and what had happened was this. Some children had been messing around with an axe and had felled a tree which had fallen on a little girl. And the little girl was out from under the tree, but she was complaining that her neck hurt. So the youth director's wife, who understood how seriously neck injuries need to be taken, immediately took charge of the situation and immobilized the little girl on a stretcher. And in the meantime, Some of the members of the youth group went to get blankets, and others went to get a first aid kit, and others drove for help. And meanwhile, another group of the young people gathered in a little circle to pray for the girl. And this may have been one of my proudest moments as a youth director. The girl was kept safe until the ambulance arrived, and my wife, who knows a thing or two about outdoor survival, turned out to be the heroine. And best of all, the young people from the youth group had the spiritual maturity to turn to the Lord in prayer in the midst of an emergency. You know, emergencies are the real test of your abilities, both medically and spiritually. When the crisis comes, where do you turn for help? How much help you get depends 
very much upon whom you ask. Now, 2 Kings chapter 3 is the story of three kings who turn in three different directions in a crisis. It all began when Misha, king of Moab, rebelled against Israel. Up until that time, Israel had been fleecing Moab. Verse 5, Misha, king of Moab, had to supply the king of Israel with a 100,000 lambs and with the wool of a 100,000 rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Now in those days, losing 200,000 fleeces was a serious threat to economic security. So something had to be done. The Moabites had to be put back in their place. So King Joram set out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. And as we read in verse 7, he also emailed Jehoshaphat, or whatever they did in those days, for backup. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you, he replied. By what route shall we attack, he asked, through the desert of Edom, which seemed like shrewd military strategy. So off they went on their military campaign, but the king soon ran into difficulty. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. It was a genuine emergency. What had started off as a military adventure was turning into a death march in only a week's time. Like most life-or-death situations, this crisis in the desert revealed the ultimate spiritual commitment of each king. Joram, the king of Israel, had never quite made up his mind whether he wanted to follow God or not. He was, you may remember, the offspring of that unholy alliance between Ahab and Jezebel. So he had all the disadvantages of a bad family background with only a few redeeming qualities. We read in the first few verses of this chapter that Joram did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam. Joram was double-minded. On the one hand, he finally removed the sacred pillar of Baal from the palace. Yet on the other hand, like Jeroboam, he allowed the people to continue worshiping pagan idols at the high places in Israel. Even though Joram did not participate in Baal worship, he continued to tolerate it. He was half-hearted in his love for God. Half of him wanted to follow God, and the other half really didn't. Now, what happens to a half-hearted believer in an emergency? Well, when the crisis came, Joram lashed out at God. This is what we read in verse 10. What? exclaimed the king of Israel. Has the Lord called us together only to hand us over to Moab? Joram leaps to the conclusion that he is about to die. He is the kind of man who always assumes the worst. And he was the kind of man who always blames God for his troubles. Joram has not given one thought to God for an entire week. But as soon as things start to go wrong, he takes God to task. He 
holds him responsible for leading him out into the desert and presumably for causing him to die. He ascribes evil to the God of all goodness. And this is often what happens to a half-hearted believer in a crisis. There are two ways to respond to any life-or-death situation, either in faith or in fear, either trusting in God and His goodness or doubting the Lord. Well, Joram can't quite respond in faith. He's not really sure he is on God's side, so how can he be sure that God is on his side? He does not have that rock-solid confidence in the goodness of God. And so when the crisis comes, he can only respond in fear. You know, when the crisis comes, many people turn against God. We hear that fewer and fewer Americans say that they believe in God, but when they get downsized out of a job or when they stub their pinky toe on the way to the bathroom, when they get hit by a reckless driver, God will be the first word out of their mouths and then followed by a string of expletives. In a real emergency, you find out the real quality of your spiritual life. One of the best ways to test the quality of your relationship with the Lord is to notice how you react when things go wrong, but whether they are little things or big things. In a real emergency, a half-hearted believer will turn out to be no believer at all. In anger or in fear, he or she will lash out at God. The sad thing is that if you turn against God, sooner or later, God will turn against you the way that He turned against Joram. He gives him the brush off in verse 13. The kings went to consult the prophet Elisha. He said to the king of Israel, what do we have to do with each other? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. To put it another way, what do Elisha and Joram have in common? Answer, nothing, because Joram is not a believer. He has no claim on God. He has no right to expect that God will answer his prayer. If he wants a prophet, he will have to consult the prophets of Baal. God wants nothing to do with him. You see, a half-hearted believer has no right to expect God to answer prayer. Anyone who wants wisdom for life or help in trouble must be wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. As Joram discovered, it is very embarrassing to come into the presence of God unexpected and unwelcome. And on the day of judgment, many will discover that it is not just embarrassing to come unto God unwelcome and unwanted, but it is also very frightening. Now, turning against God is not the only place people turn in an emergency. At the end of this chapter, we discover that Misha, king of Moab, turns first to himself and then to the devil. We will have more to say about how Misha got into trouble in a moment, but suffice it to say that he was routed by the combined armies of Israel, Judah, and Edom. We read in verses 24 and 25 that the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. They destroyed the towns. They stopped up the springs and cut down every good tree. 
From Misha's perspective, the battle could not have gone worse. His enemies scorched the earth. They destroyed every field and every fountain in Moab. When this crisis came, Misha tried two different ways of dealing with it, neither one of which involved prayer to the living God. First, he tried to handle things on his own, which is the way people usually try to deal with their problems. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. You see, the problem with solving your own problems is that some problems cannot be solved on your own, even if you have 700 soldiers at your disposal. Well, when these efforts failed, Misha called on a lower power. Verse 27, he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. In an ancient text called the Misha inscription, the Moabites attribute all of their disasters to the anger of their God. And here's what they say, for Chemosh was angry with his land. So in the moment of crisis, Misha made a sacrifice to Chemosh, but what he was really doing was sacrificing his own son to Satan. Kings sometimes did that in the ancient days, but it still must have been a shock to see the crown prince bloody on the city wall. This history is so barbaric that we might be tempted to think that it has nothing to do with us at all. Who would ever sacrifice his own child to the devil? Yet everyone who kills or wounds or even hurts a child is making a child sacrifice. Consider the women who sacrifice the bodies of their unborn either for the sake of their careers or for the sake of their boyfriends. Or consider the parents who beat their children to stop them from crying. Or consider the fathers who sacrifice the souls of their sons and their daughters on the altar of career. Now, very likely, you may never commit infanticide. But according to God's law and according to God's perfect standard, you may still be guilty of murder. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And we might read, anyone who is angry with his son or with his daughter. And so there is a little Misha in every selfish father who gets unreasonably impatient with his children. And there is a little Misha in every angry mother who, even for a moment, has ever wanted to strangle her child. You see, the law of God and His perfect standard always indicts the sins of our own hearts. When this crisis came, Misha turned himself and his son over to the devil. Howard Hendricks tells the story of an Ethiopian man who did the opposite. The man's name was Wandaro, and when his crisis came, he turned himself and his son 
over to the Lord. This is what Hendricks says. Wandara was 20 years old when missionaries arrived in his village. They said the people should worship the Creator, not Satan, as Wandaro and his people did. And in a few weeks of hearing this message, Wandaro publicly announced, I renounce Satan to follow Jesus. And he was baptized, and immediately it was clear that Wandaro's love for the Savior had become the driving force in his life. When his infant son was dying from a fever, the witch doctor implored him to make sacrifices to demons. But Wandaro refused. I love my baby boy, he replied, but I will not sacrifice to the demons again. The boy died. The villagers went into their customary rituals of mourning, but as they were wailing and cutting themselves in diabolical fury, Wandaro rushed among them, shouting, Stop! I miss my child, but God has given me peace in the face of death. I believe that my child is safe in the arms of Jesus. And thus, Wandaro shows us how to turn to God in an emergency. There was at least one king who, like Wandaro, turned to the Lord when Joram and Jehoshaphat ran out of water in that desert of Edom. Joram turned against God, but Jehoshaphat turned towards him. Donald Wiseman says, under stress, their different characters are shown up. Joram despairs while Jehoshaphat looks to God. Now, we know from Scripture that Jehoshaphat was a good and godly king. And the proof of his godliness was the way that he handled emergencies. When his troops ran out of water, he did not panic. He very calmly asked, is there no prophet of the Lord here, that we may inquire of the Lord through him? There must be one around here somewhere. Jehoshaphat did not curse God like Joram or consult the devil like Misha. His first impulse was to turn to God. Now, if you have a good memory, you will know that this was not the first time that Jehoshaphat had been in a tight spot, nor was it the first time that he had turned to the Lord. Back in 1 Kings chapter 22, as we studied when we studied Elijah, there was a war between Israel and Aram over the disputed territory of Ramoth-Gilead. So Ahab asked Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to fight against Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, yes, but first seek the counsel of the Lord. You see, before he did anything, Jehoshaphat wanted to know if the Lord wanted him to do it. And so in order to satisfy Jehoshaphat, Ahab brought out some of those dubious characters he hired to serve as prophets. And they all prophesied that Ahab would defeat the Arameans. There were about 400 of these yes prophets in all, but Jehoshaphat wasn't impressed. He asked, isn't there a prophet of the Lord whom we can inquire of? Jehoshaphat was not interested in consulting false prophets, no matter how many hundred there were. All he wanted was one true prophet of the living God. And as you may know, if you remember the story, the true prophet Micaiah came out and he promised that Israel would be defeated and that Ahab would be slain in battle. Micaiah was right and all the prophets of Ahab were wrong. 
And the point of our chapter is that when it comes to prayer, it depends whom you ask. You can pray all you want to false gods or even to Satan himself, but only God hears and only God answers. Well, Jehoshaphat knew that. He understood that. And when his army ran out of water and he had another emergency on his hands, he said again, isn't there a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? And an officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. Notice how Jehoshaphat could tell that Elisha had the word of the Lord. The prophet was known by the company he kept. You become like the people that you hang around with. And the officer knew that Elisha had been hanging around with the godliest man in all Israel, Elijah the Tishbite. Elisha was also known by the service he rendered. He did not consider himself Elijah's equal. He took upon himself the duties of a servant. So the officer describes him as the man who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. So when someone needed to fetch the water, Elisha did the fetching. And when someone needed to fix dinner, Elisha did the fixing. And when someone needed to wash the hands of the old prophet, Elisha was the one who did the pouring. So by the company he kept and by the service he rendered, Elisha was known to possess the word of the Lord. And the same thing should be true of every Christian. Your godly friendships and your servant's heart establish your spiritual reputation. They are the proof that you really do know Jesus. When you keep good company and when you perform loving service, everyone knows that you belong to the Lord. And then if your friends and neighbors ever decide that they also would like to know the Lord for themselves, they will know that they can turn to you for help. Well, when Jehoshaphat needed help, he turned to Elisha and to God. When you ask for help, it makes a great deal of difference whom you ask. When I was out in Colorado this summer, I saw a bumper sticker that read, Nothing fails like prayer. Well, what do you think of that? Do you agree with that? What the bumper sticker says is partly true. Sometimes prayer does fail. It just depends whom you ask. Unless you pray to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, your prayers are very likely will go unanswered. God is the only one to turn to because He is the only one who can help. Now, Jehoshaphat knew where to turn, and so he got the help he needed. This is how it happened. Because Jehoshaphat was a man of God, Elisha respected him, as we read in verse 14, and he agreed to help him. He called for a minstrel, and while the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. Elisha's heart was quieted before the Lord by music. And on this occasion, at least, there was a relationship between beautiful music and divine inspiration. Now, when Elisha began to prophesy, he spoke words of salvation and of victory. This is what the Lord says, Make this valley full of ditches, for you will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and you and your animals will drink. 
And then God goes on to promise to do immeasurably more than the kings ask or even imagine. Elisha said, this is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord, but he will also hand Moab over to you. You will overthrow every fortified city, cut down every good tree, stop up all the springs, and ruin every good field. God will give the kings more than water. He will give them their enemies. And God did just as he promised. The next morning, verse 20, about the time for offering the sacrifice, there it was, water flowing from the direction of Edom. And the land was filled with water. Somewhere far away in the mountains of Edom, a rainstorm had started a flash flood which had run down the wadis into the valley where it filled all of the trenches that the armies had dug in faith. And so God saved the kings and their armies by sending them water. And that was the easy part. Now for the hard part. All the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight against them, and so every man who could bear arms was stationed on the border. And when they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water. And to the Moabites across the way, the water looked red, like blood. That's blood, they said. Those kings must have fought and slaughtered each other. Now to the plunder, Moab. That conversation in the Moabite camp must have been hilarious. Hey, that's blood, they said. And then I suppose they started to give one another high fives or whatever they did in those days. But it wasn't blood. It was an optical illusion. It was only the sunrise shining on those ditches full of water, very likely red from the desert soil. And yet in their eagerness for plunder, the Moabites ran recklessly to their slaughter. In one mighty stroke, God delivered his people and destroyed his enemies. But you know, it never would have happened if Jehoshaphat had not turned to the Lord. For if he had not asked for God's help, then Elisha would not have given his prophecy, and the trenches never would have been dug, and the Moabites never would have seen the water in the trenches, and they never would have run into the arms of defeat. How much help you get depends upon whom you ask. When the next crisis comes, whether it is large or small, where will you turn? Will you turn to God? Will you turn against God? Will you turn to your own resources? Will you even turn towards the devil? The only place to turn in a time of trouble is to God the Father and to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you turn to Him, He will save you. He will forgive your sins. He will rescue you from your enemies. He will give you wisdom for the decisions of life. But if you turn anywhere else, you will be disappointed and you will be eternally disappointed. Now earlier I mentioned the story of Wandaro, the Ethiopian man who lost his son. But his story did not end with the death of his son. Soon he faced another crisis. Back in 1936, when the Italians seized Ethiopia, they expelled the missionaries and only 48 believers remained behind. And that was 48 too many as far as they were concerned, and so a campaign of intense persecution began. Christians were arrested and beaten. Their property was destroyed. Their churches 
were torched. And finally, an official named Dogesa decided to make an example of that man, Wandaro. So he had him arrested and tied up and beaten in the center of the village. Now you will give up this religion, Dogesa said. Never, Wandaro cried. And he began shouting to those standing by, This rope is not the final judgment. It is only placed on me by man. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be freed from sin. And at that, Degesa ordered his men to beat Wandara with a whip. And during the flogging, he taunted the believer by saying, The foreigners have all gone. They aren't here to help you. Give up. But even that did not sway Wandara's faith. I am not serving the missionaries, he shot back, but the God who sent them. He will strengthen me. And so the Lord did. When he refused to bend, they locked him up in a bamboo cage where he remained in custody for an entire year. But then one day he was released. The first thing that he did was to gather the other Christians and to go out into Dogesa's field to help harvest his oppressor's flocks. In 1942, some six years later, the missionaries were allowed to re-enter Ethiopia. Imagine their amazement when they learned that God had multiplied those 48 converts into a church of 10,000 believers. And When they arrived, Wandaro met them, beaming and crying, Welcome! Welcome! You see, in his crisis, Wandaro turned to the Lord, and the Lord helped him. He saved him. He rescued him from his enemies, and he confounded all of their plans and put them to shame. And if you turn to the Lord yourself, you will find, whether your crisis is large or small, that the Lord will help you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confess that so often when trouble does come, we don't know where to turn. But we turn, at least initially, in the wrong direction. So we ask that you would forgive us our sins, and we ask that you would so train us that in every situation we would turn instinctively to you for help. And we pray that you would always help us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. 
For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word. Thank you.